please. This morning we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uninvited. Have you ever known the hurt of feeling that you were not welcome, that you were overlooked, that you were uninvited, and maybe your presence was unwanted? If you live very long, you know something of the hurt that comes when you feel that you're uninvited unknown, and that your presence is unwanted. How awesome, how amazing it is that there is a God in heaven and He has invited you to live in His presence forever. You are wanted. Your presence is desired. And no one in all the world can say, I wasn't invited and I wasn't wanted because here's the answer that responds to all of those excuses. Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's guarantee of how much He wants you to be with Him In heaven forever. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 11, if you're not already there. Appreciate Waylon reading the scripture from that passage for us this morning. When you look at this passage, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, it really is one of the best loved passages in all of scripture. And it's easy to understand why. He invites you and me to be with Him forever. And there is something remarkably precious, something very humbling about being invited by God Himself to live with Him forever. If we would really appreciate Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30... We need to get the context. And the context really is Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30. And in this section of Scripture, there are four themes I would like for us to consider. And then I want us to shine the light on Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. And look at four aspects of the Savior's invitation. Four themes 
that help us appreciate even more what Jesus is going to talk about when he invites us to come and live with him forevermore. Theme number one. If you look at Matthew eleven twenty five through 30, you'll see the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Let me show you what I mean. When Jesus is speaking of the sovereignty of God, and that means that God's in charge. He's the ruler. He's the king. That there's not one square inch in all the world where God doesn't say, Mine. This passage deals with God's sovereignty. And if you look in verses 25 through 27 especially, it speaks of God as the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one who created everything. Psalm 33 verses 6 through 9. He's the one that keeps everything going. Colossians 1 verses 16 and 17. But not only that... He can say mine by virtue of redemption by providing a Savior for the sins of the world. Like Joe was talking about in the Lord's Supper meditation. He's the sovereign. He's the boss. He's in charge. He's the king. Not you, not me. But you know, he he doesn't stop there. In speaking of God's sovereignty, notice this. Five times, just in verses 25, 26, and 27, God is referred to as the Father. Father, 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 Father. It is as if Jesus is going out of His way to talk about how that the sovereign of this world is also the Lord and Father of mankind. And the one who wants to have a relationship with us that lasts forever and ever. A lot of people have a hard time trying to reconcile the fact that God is king and the fact of human responsibility. Because after all, when you look at Matthew eleven twenty five through 30, it plainly teaches that God is the king and that he's sovereign, and yet at the same time it speaks of anyone, whoever, the idea of coming to God and human responsibility. Here is something to think about. We may not completely and perfectly understand every aspect of God's sovereignty and of human responsibility, but I can be thankful for both. I can be thankful for both. I am so glad that God is the Lord of heaven and earth, a God who we as Christians can know as our Father in a beautiful sense. And yet I'm equally glad that that there's a sense of human responsibility in coming to God and loving God. He doesn't twist our arms. He doesn't coerce us. 
He desires love freely given and service given out of devotion. God's sovereignty is dealt with in Matthew eleven twenty five through 30. But not just that. Jesus as the Son and revelation of God is dealt with. Get that theme. Jesus as the Son, S-O-N, and as the full and final revelation of God. And really what Jesus is saying in Matthew eleven twenty five through 27, and it's strong... If you want to know what God is like, look no farther than the Son. Look no farther than me, he's saying. He is saying that all things have been given him. Notice that. All things have been given him. It sounds an awful lot like Matthew 28, 18. All authority, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That statement sounds very similar to this one. He goes on to say that the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father. And those who know the Son are blessed to know the Father through the one who has revealed Him, Jesus. I love this passage. I'm so glad that someone said, Mike, would you preach on Matthew 11, 28 through 30? Because here we have not only the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, but we have the Father and the Son each being fully God and how they relate to each other beautifully and make it possible for us to have a relationship with God. Third, get this theme. The passage deals, Matthew eleven twenty five through 30, with those God desires to come to Him with the people that God desires to come to Him. Look at the passage, and when you look at 25 through 27, the people God desires to come to Him are people who are like little children. Like little children. That's not all that is said. People who are not... Arrogant. People who are not self-sufficient. People who are not proud and arrogant and full of themselves. It's going to be really hard for a person who's self-sufficient and proud and arrogant and full of themselves and thinking that they are worthy, that they are deserving... Go back and remember what I said about God and the sovereignty of God when you look at verses 25 through 27. How is God's will described in verses 25 through 27? How is God's will described? His gracious will. Do you see it? His gracious will. 
Grace is given to those that are not deserving. As a matter of fact, to people who are ill-deserving because of sin. Those whom God desires to come to Him are people who humble themselves in His sight. James 4 verse 10, who clothe themselves in humility. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. People who desperately acknowledge that they're not sufficient, that they're not adequate, and that they need God. That brings me to the fourth theme. Have you ever just been sick and tired of being sick and tired? Have you ever just felt exhausted and just excessively burdened? Sometimes we'll say to somebody, you look like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. When you look at Matthew eleven twenty five through 30, this passage has its one of its themes. Those that are exhausted and who are burdened excessively with pain, with worry, with grief, with sickness, with doubt. It seems to me that Matthew eleven twenty five through 30 is a passage for all of us. Because sometimes we all feel as if our backs are going to give out due to the strain and weight and burdens of life. If you have ever felt that way, this passage is for you. Did you get those themes? The sovereignty of God. Jesus as God's Son and the fullness and final revelation of Him. Then we went on to look at the kind of people God desires. Humble. Dependent, like children realizing our need of help. And then he deals with people who are tired and burdened. That brings me now to Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. In looking at this passage, and it's so well known, many of us have committed it to our heart and memory long, long ago. But I want you to see this. The revelation of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty-five through 27 makes the invitation possible in verses 28 through 30. The revelation of Jesus in verses 25 through 27 makes the invitation possible in verses 28 through 30. Now, Waylon, if you miss that, you've missed everything. 
And it's important to go back and look at the context here in Matthew 11 before we look at four aspects of this invitation. Notice how Matthew 11 begins. Matthew 11, the first 19 or so verses, begins with some of John's followers coming to Jesus And you have some great statements made by Jesus concerning John and his work as the forerunner, the one who would make paths, the path straight for the servant of the Lord to come, for the Lord to come. And people were saying Jesus was not like John. And I can almost see a faint smile on my Lord's face when he says... The people didn't listen to John, at least many of them didn't. He didn't fit their perception. I come along and am different, and I don't fit their perception either. What is it that people want? After all, hasn't Scripture revealed what My coming will be like. And he goes on to say this. Notice Matthew 11, 18 and 19. And do not let this escape you either. Any more than the revelation of Jesus makes the invitation of God possible. Remember this. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Do you see that in Matthew eleven eighteen and 19? He is the sinner's friend. And there is something very humbling about that. There is something that just absolutely stamps out pride. Because you see, if a person doesn't even think that they sin or they are a sinner, that person really doesn't need a Savior, do they? Now look at the context of chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Because in this section of Scripture, in Matthew 11, what Jesus does is pronounce judgment on three cities. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They're not well known to most people, but they're mentioned in Scripture, and they are mentioned in Scripture as being places where Jesus did many of His miracles. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now notice how Matthew 11.25 begins. After these things. After he had spoken about being the friend of sinners. After he said, you know, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum had great deeds, miracles performed in them, and people still didn't believe in me and repent. It's at this moment he talks about 
Jesus being the revelation of God, the full and final revelation, and it's at this point he gives the invitation. Now we're ready to look at the invitation itself. Four aspects of the Savior's invitation. Aspect number one, consider the invitation itself. The invitation consists of three statements. Come unto me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. There is no way to be right with the Lord of heaven and earth. There's no way to be right with the heavenly Father. There's no way to be right with the one who says, Mine, over every square inch of creation, without coming to Jesus. He is the key that unlocks the door to eternal life, John 3.16. He is the good shepherd whose voice we hear and respond to, John 10.11-18. He is the door through which we come to know God and every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1.3, He is the great physician who heals us of sin and eternal death, Romans 6.23. He is the fountain who cleanses us from sin, Zechariah 13.1. Come unto me. You know what that implies? It implies that sinners can come. All who labor and are heavy laden. Anyone. God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. It's not that sinners can't come. It's just that some, because of obstinance and arrogance, won't come. Matthew 23 and verse 37. John 5, 39 and 40. Come unto me. The the passage goes on to speak of the invitation. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke. When you think about a yoke, you kind of go back to the idea of farming. And some in this assembly are old enough to think of mules or maybe oxen that were yoked. Where there is this yoke put around their shoulders to help them work together in pulling. Take my yoke. And sometimes today when we use the expression yoke, Y-O-K-E, the next two words are of oppression. A yoke of oppression. Maybe you've heard that term. 
But in this case, it is not a yoke of oppression. It is a yoke of liberation and devotion. Take my yoke upon you. Hey, Will, Jesus had a hard life when he was here on earth. You ever think your life's hard sometimes? I know I do. But Jesus had a hard life and knew exactly how his life would end. And yet no one ever had a greater sense of joy and peace and confidence in his God than the Lord. If taking Jesus' yoke means that I can have a greater sense of joy and peace and confidence in my God, it's by far to be preferred over this exhausting, burden-filled life. Take my yoke upon you. The term often was used of, of, of teachers... I am under the yoke of this instructor. Imagine being under the yoke of the Son of God. Under His tutelage and instruction. Learn of me. It sounds like Matthew 28, 19. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Look again. This passage deals not only with the invitation. Consider this. Secondly, it deals with the description of God's people. All you who labor and are heavy laden. To go with what was said earlier, those who are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I want you to know that Jesus does not come to add to our burdens. The Pharisees were really good at that. Matthew 23 and verse 4. He didn't come to, to break our backs even more. To exhaust us even more. You who labor and are heavy laden, you who have worked to the point that you are tired and exhausted and spent, and those of you who are overburdened and weighed down, You recognize how much you need relief. How much you need someone to take the load. We even use that expression, take a load off. How grateful we should be for Jesus, the Son of God, who took the load of our sins off. Burdens will be lifted that were pressing so. 
showers of great blessing or our heart will roll. Third, consider this. Consider the blessing. The blessing in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. The blessing is stated twice. I will give you fill in the blank. I will give you what? One more time. I will give you rest. Right. And you shall find rest to your souls. There is something remarkably peaceful about that promise. By this in your Bible, you might want to jot down Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7 through chapter 4 and verse 16. It's a great section, Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 16, because it deals with the rest that awaited God's people when they got to the promised land. When they came to God's place, the land that He was giving them, there remains for the people of God a perfect rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. But the disobedient and the unfaithful will not receive that rest. Coming to Jesus, taking His yoke and learning from Him has to do with giving Jesus our love, giving Jesus our trust, and making Christ our hope, our greatest hope in life. Rest. Rest is not just the ceasing of activity. Because sometimes you can be doing something and still consider it restful. You ever read a book and think of it being restful? Maybe you like to go fishing. And as soon as that hook gets in the water, you can rest. And it seems as if everything is much lighter as far as burdens. Maybe you hold a grandchild... And believe you me, that's work. But it can be restful too, can it? So rest is not the ceasing of activity. It is the absence of conflict and worry that can come when a person has a relationship with God. It is not the absence of all activity, but the absence of any other want. God, all I really want is you and what you provide. And I see how you have provided in every aspect of my life and my cup overflows. I will give you rest. You shall find rest to your souls. Yes, we all struggle sometimes with being exhausted and overburdened. 
but I'm so glad that this is in the Bible because it doesn't have to be that way. The very God who took our sins on is the same God who can take our burdens and our exhaustion on. And He is the one who gives us rest. Amen? And if we believe the first, we must, out of necessity, believe the second. If He can deal with sin, He can deal with our burdens and exhaustion too. Lastly, consider the reason. I love the Lord. I need to love Him more. But notice what He does here. He gives us reason to come to Him. And three are given in the passage itself. I am meek and lowly in heart. Do you see it? Brothers and sisters, friends, catch this. Francisco, our guest today. Jesus refers to himself seven times just in verses 28 through 30. He's the answer we all need. Seven pronouns. Me, my. Me, my. And he says... I am meek and lowly in heart. Meek, you may have the word gentle. Lowly, you may have the word humble. And of everything that Jesus says in this passage, this is the most mind-blowing. It is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus tells us exactly what his heart is. What makes him tick? What's inside? Meek and lowly in heart, Steve, it says. In heart. I am gentle and humble in heart. Well, I'm going to tell us all this. If we're high and mighty, we're not like the meek and lowly. And the fact is, is the meek and lowly, the gentle and humble, is the high and mighty. If God in His very nature is gentle and humble, and how He shows this is by coming here. It is as if God sends Jesus with a handwritten invitation, come to me. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's wonderful. And it's as if he's handing one to Adam, one to Thomas, everybody. You are cordially invited to have the opportunity to live with the Son of God and with His Father forever. With Jesus and God, the Father forever. That's humbling. And it says something about the attitude that we should have. You are wanted. You are desired. And it may be that you think 
not without some reason that no one on earth wants you or desires you or cares about you. But there is one far greater than anyone and everyone else on earth that wants you and desires you. You matter to God. I am meek and lowly in heart, he says. Notice again what he says. Number two. My yoke is what? My yoke is what? Easy. Easy. The devil has invested over thousands of years in the lie that God puts the weight on your shoulders. That doing good is hard. And that doing what's wrong is is better. It's liberating. And what he has just done is undermined what Jesus is saying in the invitation. My yoke is easy. You know, for those that saw maybe mules or or, or, or oxen yoked, the way I can kind of relate to it is I've often seen people carrying something kind of like this where they'll have maybe jugs of something on each side and maybe a pole across their back and they're carrying this. Think of that as as a makeshift yoke. Jesus says, my yoke is light compared to your laboring to the point of exhaustion and being overburdened with sin and pain and grief and heartache. Now stop and think about that. You can't tell me that a life of love is not better than a life of hatred and bitterness. You cannot tell me that a life of purity is not better and lighter in the long run than a life of lust and sin. My yoke is easy. Statement number three, given to give us assurance, a reason to accept the invitation... My yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5 and verse 3. God gives us no command just to weigh us down. Every command He gives is for our good and for His glory. My burden is light. I wonder how many people are in this assembly today who are exhausted, who are overburdened. The invitation of God is for you and for me. And it stands until time will be no more, until the time comes when we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. And think about this. 
The one who died for us is also the one who will help us with our tiredness and exhaustion and with our heavy loads. That's the God that we serve. And friend, you need to serve Him too. If you've not come to Jesus in faith, in repentance and baptism, there won't be a better time than now because the Savior's invitation has just been proclaimed. For those of us who are Christians, we will go through times of burden. After all, the Lord could be said to have had a hard life. And yet no one ever lived with the peace and confidence and hope of Jesus. Because we are in Him, we belong to Him, and we are Christians. Oh, friends, shouldn't we live our life with a greater sense of peace and confidence and hope? We don't know what the future holds. We know who holds the future. God. Let us stand and sing.